ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Kirsty Melville here and welcome to the History Listen. Today, the story of Minna Mullen Schulter's grandfather, who fought in the Second World War. 24th of December, 1944. The night was clear and starless. The road, not a proper one, but rather like one of our Australian bush tracks, led through open scrub country, an isolated farm every now and then. At about 3am, we approached our destination, but at the same time, the road disappeared, lost itself in open swampy meadows. Minna's grandfather, Akeem, was on the Eastern Front when he wrote this letter. He was a German soldier. Minna is Australian. Her parents and grandmother were also Australian. Yet the little she knew about her family's World War II story has always felt disconnected from what she was taught in school. And her grandparents' life in Berlin in the years before the war was full of gaps, of unanswered questions. So Minna went looking for answers. Mjolln Schulter, my surname, it's a mouthful. A few years ago, I worked on a project marking the 100th anniversary of Gallipoli. At one point, I was approached by an elderly woman and asked why a girl with a German surname was researching the history of our Anzacs. I laughed, but I was also reminded how disconnected my family's war story is from Australia's Anzac tradition. It's a story that doesn't venture into the traditional theatres of World War II that strike a chord with other Australians, Kokoda, Tobruk, Changi. It's a story that begins in the middle-class suburbs of 1920s Melbourne and ends in the deep snowdrifts of Poland in 1945. My grandfather's responsible for my long double-barrel German surname. He came from Berlin to live in Melbourne in the mid-twenties as a young X-ray engineer. His first name was Joachim, but it was shortened by Australians to Achim and then to Bob. It was a strange time in Australian-German relations. The Enemy Aliens Act had banned Australia's former World War I enemies, which included Germans, from entering the country. They were classed in the same category as epileptics, idiots and criminals. But by 1925, restrictions on immigration had eased. Soon after Akim arrived, he met and married my grandmother. Muriel Mudge, an Anglo-Irish girl from Turak. They moved back and forth between Allied Australia and Nazi Germany, but eventually settling in Berlin on the brink of war. As a family, we've struggled to come to terms with this past. We've questioned again and again their motivations and whether they believed in the Nazi party. And without trying to offer any kind of apology for their views, I wanted to learn more about them. It was February 1926 when I was a tall, slim girl and I'd just had my 18th birthday. I knocked on the door of the Gloria Light Company, Collins Street, Melbourne. It was immediately opened by a tall, blonde young man with dark brown eyes who was evidently on his way out. He held the door open for me to enter, then he went on his way. But in that moment, he said to himself, that is the girl I'm going to marry. Muriel was 18 years old when she met Akim. 
she wrote this memoir when she was 81. I discovered it in the State Library where she'd lodged it, written on thin lavender sheets of paper with an old typewriter, with scrawled corrections all over it. It reads like a coming-of-age adventure or a Mills and Boone novel. But when she describes her first meeting with Akim, Muriel is entirely unreliable. I've seen photos of Akim and he has a full head of brown, not blonde hair. They travel back to Germany after their marriage. Muriel meets Akim's family and she's giddy with the experience of Berlin for the first time. Arriving in Berlin, I was dazzled by the myriad of neon light signs which were reflected in the shiny, muddy footpaths. Australia had very few neon lights at the time. That evening, I drank what I thought was lemonade. I'd come from a teetotal family. I said, oh, Australian lemonade does not taste half as good as this. And Akim's whole family laughed. I was, of course, drinking champagne. They returned from Australia to live in Germany in 1938. But the reasons Muriel gives for why they leave Australia are full of holes. Achim, she says, was offered a job by his radiology firm in Buenos Aires, and they go back to Berlin to farewell Achim's family. My dad was a baby at the time. Our little family only had a few weeks in Germany before catching the ship, the Santa Rosa, to sail to Buenos Aires on the 3rd of September 1938. The day before sailing was a flawless day. The Mühlenschulte family were all gathered when over the radio we heard the words uttered in London that Britain was at war with Germany. Strange to say, although there had been murmurs and mutterings about an impending war, no one in Germany had believed such a thing could really happen. The glaring detail my grandmother fails to notice, or deliberately glosses over, is that her dates precede the outbreak of war in 1939 by a whole year. And the ship, Santa Rosa, was an American passenger ship that never sailed on routes from Germany to South America. I know that Achim and Muriel were in Berlin in November 1938. And on November 9th, the Nazi boycott of Jewish businesses led to the violent pogrom Kristallnacht, or Night of the Broken Glass. But Muriel only has one reference to the Holocaust in her whole 20-page memoir. Only once did I ever see Achim cry. That was when he came back from Poland with news of the ill-treatment of the Jews by his countrymen. He could not grasp it. He was depressed for days. I don't believe this story of Muriel's. It sounds self-conscious and was probably inserted into her memoir at the time when she was living amongst Holocaust survivors in Melbourne. Also, I've heard that Muriel still expressed anti-Semitic views late in life. It makes me wonder who was she writing this memoir for? The role of ordinary Germans who witness these events and their passive response is still hotly contested. For many years after the war, the phrase, we didn't know about it, became a popular German response to questions about the Holocaust. My family also asks these questions of Achim and Muriel. Even now, they're both dead. What did they know of the Holocaust? How much of the Nazi regime did they buy into? It's clear from stories, but also photos, that Akim and Muriel were swept up in the support for the Nazi party. 
Photos in my grandparents' old albums show Achim and Muriel sitting at a picnic in the Australian countryside before they left, with other German-Australians, a swastika flag flying overhead. And then there's Muriel, photographed under a waterfall, giving the Nazi salute. But there are also stories that in Berlin, Achim let Muriel listen to BBC broadcasts as long as she hid in the wardrobe with the radio. From 1942, 15 million Germans also listened to the BBC, which reported news of the gas chambers. Yet in her memoir, Muriel remains silent about politics and silent about the Holocaust. She describes encounters with the Gestapo in Germany as misunderstandings that were smoothed out in a friendly manner over coffee. Muriel also talks about her experience of being an English-speaking woman in Berlin during the Allied bombing. Gradually, the bombing raids became more intense. On one occasion, the women in our apartment block were given a lesson in how to handle firebombs. I was selected at random to see if I could follow instructions. Most people there knew I was an Englishwoman, but they just looked sympathetically at me. During the whole of those war years, I never suffered any antagonism or hostility. On the contrary, quite often neighbours would say when they saw me pushing the pram through the streets near our home, you poor girl being so far away from your homeland. But things did not continue so smoothly or in such a friendly manner for my grandparents in Berlin. In 1944, Achim was managing an X-ray firm, but as the Allies got closer to Germany, staff asked if they could leave and return to their families, and Achim agreed they could. The accountant reported him to the local Nazi group leader, and as punishment, he was sent into the Wehrmacht army in September. It was at a time when the Eastern Front was disintegrating and there was a need for more men. One month later, Hitler conscripted all men aged 13 to 60 into a people's militia. While he was in the army, Akim wrote 52 letters to my grandmother in less than four months. September 9th, 1944. My own dearest heart. It was the hardest thing in the world to leave you there in tears in a strange city with no home to go back to. But I believe you'll stick it out and fight your way through. If not for your own sake, then at least for the sake of our kiddies and for me. I'm now a tiny cog in a machine which rolls on in an inexorable rhythm and I just got to keep on moving round in the narrow, rigid path provided for me without the slightest deviation of my own free will allowed. Muriel says that Akim sewed money into her hat and told her to get as close to the Swiss border as possible. She found a farmhouse where she could board with the kids. From Akim's letters, it's clear that Muriel didn't share his optimistic view of the war's end. And she struggled with Nazi officials in the countryside who scrutinised her. Akim appealed to her British and her Irish identity in an attempt to comfort her. 15th of November, 1944. My own sweetheart. The depressing mood in which you write is a great worry to me. Where is your British sense of humour which is supposed to carry your race through even the most awkward and unpleasant situations? Has it really evaporated under the stress of the last couple of months? Then I could only hope that your compatriots across the Channel are equally near to giving up the ghost. When we said goodbye that last Sunday, 
You promised me you'd never fail me. The little pinpricks of daily life with strange people seem to assume colossal importance in your mind. You told me the little story of Michael doing a wee on the Bowers' pet cabbages and how the Bowers reported it to the Ortsgruppenleiter and you concluded with the question, and you think life is still worth living? Expecting me to answer in the negative, I suppose, and to take my rifle, shoot myself in the backyard here, and in my farewell letter, ask you to jump into the Bowdoin Sea. Surely you must admit your perspectives are all distorted, and what you write is sheer bunkum. Sweetheart, I'm sorry I had to rouse you up again once more, but I simply can't let you go on like that. And don't write me off already. I don't intend to let the Bolshies get me. You can let your Irish temper flare up as much as you like over anything you like. I enjoy it. I love to see sparks fly out of you. But I'm helpless and lost when I get I want to lie down and die sort of letters from you. Akim's letters appear largely uncensored and include him describing the Nazi official who reported him to the Gestapo as a narrow-minded, pig-headed, bumptious fool. He also mentions using the German army uniform and his rifle to intimidate Polish farmers into handing over food like chickens, milk and potatoes. This makes Muriel furious. Oh, but I must answer one more point in your letter. Apropos my telling you of what we have to do to supplement our rations, you imply that I'm going to the dogs in every possible way. That one really annoyed me. I'm not going to the dogs and don't intend to, not in any way at all. If we have to solve the food problem here in a somewhat unorthodox way, it's because it's the only way possible. It doesn't mean that I'll go on pinching potatoes for the rest of my life instead of buying them. Muriel and Akim forgave each other and took stock of the worsening situation. While Muriel continued life near the Swiss-German border, insulated from the worst parts of the war's end, Akim was moved closer to the Eastern Front in Poland. Just before Christmas, he marched for 24 hours straight. 24th of December, 1944. The night was clear and starless. The road, not a proper one, but rather like one of our Australian bush tracks, led through open scrub country, an isolated farm every now and then. At about 3am, we approached our destination, but at the same time, the road disappeared, lost itself in open swampy meadows. I was too sleepy to continue riding last night. Now it's Christmas Day. Last night, after I'd blown out the candle, I lay in bed smoking my last cigarette and I thought of all our Christmas days together. The rollicking happy ones with your family in Australia and the Christmas with our Michael. It was a sweet part to think back. I can't find words to tell you how I felt and what I felt. It hurts too much anyhow. I don't know what the future holds in store for me, but whatever it may be, sweetheart, never fear that it'll change me, and I'll always remain the same for you. I'm not frightened of the front. I'll do my best to come back to you whole and sound.
On January 12, 1945, the Soviet army attacked the Germans along the Vistula River. German intelligence had estimated Soviet forces would outnumber them by three men to one. In fact, the ratio was five Russian soldiers to one German soldier. 12th of January, 1945. Dika Luft. The air is thick. Ivan Grifdan. Russians attacking. Worked through the night. Luggage is packed. Heavy artillery fire. Stimmung gut. Morale is good. All my love. Always your own. Akim. This letter is scrawled on a piece of lined paper, hole punched in the left margin. It's the last news from my grandfather who was lost, somewhere in southwest Poland, three months before the war ended. Fifty years later, my brother Arthur went to Germany on student exchange and then retraced Akim's steps with my dad. He remembers reading this letter on a train somewhere in Poland. We arrived in Poland on the train coming from Prague and it was the coldest winter, uh, I think, since 1945 when Akim had gone missing. Dad had planned a trip to go through the region in Poland where the last Red Cross coordinates had placed his unit. And we arrived at night, I think, coming across the border from the Czech Republic into Poland. My father was asleep in the train and I was with just up chatting and drinking with my brother Paddy when we opened the bag and discovered uh, Akim's last cable from that time when he had gone missing. It was a simple two-line message which simply stated, Alaska packed, uh, Ivan greift an, bags are packed and uh, here come the Russians. It was quite a poignant uh, moment to read that and to realise that those were the last words of Akim that were, were sent from the front. And I guess the moment also for our father was quite significant and the journey the next day which continued through Poland and, uh, and that winter. Just, just seeing the, the countryside and the snow and, uh, and imagining what uh, Akim would have gone through in those final, final days or final moments was uh, quite a sort of moving experience, I guess. Realising that perhaps um, if, if he hadn't died in battle against the Russians, if he or hadn't been killed by the Polish partisans, that he could have fallen through a frozen river or, or just missing in the snow um, was, was quite a, an emotional sort of moment, I guess, for, for Dad and for, for both of us. When I went through Akim's letters, there were passages marked with an X where he mentioned fellow soldiers. I wondered if Muriel had made these marks when she began her search for Akim after the war. All my endeavours by means of letters to Akim's comrades and to their families, visits to the United Nations in Switzerland, investigation in Munich where soldiers' records are kept, also the very kind assistance from the Australian Foreign Affairs Office failed to elicit any information as to Akim's fate. Muriel waited another year in Germany and England after the war. She waited for news of Akim. But in 1946, with two small children, she returned to Australia. She fell in love with the captain of the ship they travelled on. 
they wanted to marry. But without proof of Akim's death, it would have been considered bigamy. She didn't receive the official Red Cross report on Akim's fate for another 27 years. German Red Cross, Munich, 12th of March, 1973. For many, there is existing evidence that they died in action. Others, however, met their death in the heavily snowed-in forested regions, as well as while crossing the Pilica River, without having been noticed even by their fellow soldiers close by. Muriel never remarried, but as she grew older, she glorified Akim's memory. As a family, we were left to make sense of her stories. To us, Akim was both a presence and an absence. My brother Arthur remembers this from an early age and how it shaped our identity as a family. My earliest memories are from when I was uh, five or six um, and there was always a jumble of artefacts of photos, watches and things that were in, in uh, Dad's desk drawer at home. I guess there was a, some sort of feeling or consciousness that these uh, that Akim existed in these items and, and the photos, and, and particularly, I think I remember a watch in particular. He was always there as a sort of focal point for our, our German identity, um, and as we grew up in Australia, and, and in particular sort of uh, family rituals uh, such as celebrating Christmas on the 24th which for an Anglo family and, and living in Australia in an Anglo context was quite a, a strange uh, ritual, particularly for kids at school uh, that, that would have celebrated on the 25th. I guess, yeah, the insistence of my grandmother keeping up this tradition um, and also the German identity that came from our last name, which came from Akim, uh, were things that were quite strong. You don't remember the story mum tells that you had nightmares about him as a child and night, well, nightmares that why, why, why couldn't we find him, that he was missing? Uh, no, I don't. I don't remember that at all. And that was, that's certainly something new and surprising for me. His absence or, or the unexplained nature of uh, his disappearance must have been something that, that affected me or that was, was stronger than I've actually ever really thought about before. We had a lot of stories from Muriel and I guess some from Dad but as we never really knew who he was or, or who he was as a person, um, it was more tied up to the whole uh, context of the war and, and around the war uh, and, and that sort of feeling. Uh, and, and so that must have been perhaps something which struck with me much deeper than I realised. Being separated from Europe and particularly Germany uh, that went through uh, a lot of the exorcism and dealing with the angst of its past uh, in Australia, we were insulated from that. Um, and I remember much later um, being told uh, by a German girlfriend that I talked too much about the war and, uh, and that I hadn't gotten over it. This was uh, a strange thing really to hear. Um, and I guess because the generation that during the 68 revolution was able to sort of exercise that angst and, and deal with that identity and connection to the war, um, was different for Dad because uh, in Australia he never really got that opportunity. Um, and in turn that left really questions for our family and our identity and what this missing person, uh, namely Akim, uh, really meant to us and, and meant to the family. Some of the other strange stories Muriel told us included a plumber who came to her house, saw the portrait of Akim on the mantelpiece 
and swore that he'd been in a prisoner of war camp with Akim in the Soviet Union. It was never clear to the family if these stories were true, but they were a reminder that Muriel remained haunted by Akim's disappearance. For years I kept on hoping for word from Akim in some way. He was an excellent organiser and was adaptable in any situation and generally liked and respected. I could never bring myself to the belief that I would never see Akim again or hear news of him. Muriel's memoir moves between the adventurous tales of a suburban Australian girl in Berlin in the 1930s, the grief of losing Akim, and the need to remove herself from the darker parts of history. But it's also the story of a woman caught between enemy lines and the blurry definitions of citizenship. Her national identity constantly shifts. She describes herself as a foreigner in Germany, Akim calls her British and Irish. She becomes German by marriage, but back in Melbourne, she has to apply to become an Australian citizen again. She lost her citizenship when she married an enemy alien. Writing this memoir in 1980s Australia, Muriel tries to ignore old allegiances and gloss over awkward memories, revealing holes that are as obvious as the stitches that hold her story together. Yet by telling my grandmother's story, I can unpick her silences and understand how people like her wrestle with the experience of war and try to tell a story that they and their family can live with. Crossing Enemy Lines was written and produced by Minna Mullen-Schulter with technical production from Andrei Shabanov. Next time on The History Listen, a story which reveals the deep historic connection between Māori and Pākehā, Europeans. In 1805, the senior Māori chief, Tupahi, spent time in the British colony of New South Wales, striking up a friendship with Governor King and building plans to expand trade relations between Aotearoa and Australia. As a mark of respect, King gifted his Māori guest a small silver medal, which was later stolen. 200 years after the important cultural exchange between Māori and Pākehā, Tapahi's descendants fought for the medal's return to Aotearoa and for this history to be remembered. It belongs to an important rangatira and it was part of an important gift. It recognises the sovereignty of the Crown, but also the sovereignty of Māori people. The return of the Tapahi Medal is important on a national level. It comes to us at a time when Māori are questioning whether or not they had ceded their sovereignty to the Crown. And here is an object, a tiny object with a very big story to tell about the recognition of Māori sovereignty by the British Crown pre-treaty. So it has a constitutional importance. I think its historical importance is that it speaks of a pact that was made between two very important leaders, one based in Sydney and the other one based in Aotearoa, New Zealand, based on mutual respect. And these are the sorts of relationships that we're still striving towards today. It's a relationship of understanding, of mutual respect, respect for each other's sovereignty, 
of seeing opportunity in each other's culture. The story of Te Pahi and the return of the medal next time on The History Listen. I'm Kirsty Melville and I'll catch you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.